Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we continue our conversation about influential people in what's called the liturgical movement. So this week, we are talking about Lambert Baudouin, and uh, I really had no idea who this was before we did this podcast, and some of the things that I learned about what he teaches about liturgy just really blew my mind. So without further ado, episode 18 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. All right, so uh, we're going to continue the trajectory of talking about influential people in terms of studying the liturgy. and uh, But more importantly, sorry, I, I winced when you said that, because this isn't about people so much as it is about the ideas. Okay, I'll start again. <laughs> we're going to talk about the more ideas from people that don't even Incon- matter. Inconsequential and, people. Yeah, inconsequential. <laughs> the people don't even matter. We're, we're, we're only just going to talk about what they said, but we're not even going to name names because we don't want to credit we anybody. We are not going to say Lambert Baudouin. Yeah, and I'm glad you said it because I do not know even how to pronounce his name. Do you so. remember that song, Good Things by the Bodines from the 90s? Yeah. The people say Lambert Bodine sometimes. But it's Baudouin, very Frenchy, oh, you know. Baudouin. Like a slightly haughty duck. I, whenever Baudouin. I try to do a French accent, I always have to start by saying, oh, oh, oh. And then it kind of gets me in the mood, Yeah, you know? that's part of it, yeah. Yeah, all right. Anyway, so Lambert Baudouin. Right. So he published... Good. A, yeah, not bad. A yeah. book uh, was published in English in 1926, but it was um, written before that, slightly before that, uh, called Liturgy, the Life of the Church. And the reason this matters is not just because it's an interesting book from the old days, although it is. Uh, It's because he, again, like Guardini, put his finger on these essential ontological points. And I think, I don't know. The word again. The O word, yeah, ontology. The study of the nature of a thing, study of being. What's the nature of the liturgy itself? And uh, I know maybe, maybe listeners will start mocking me for using the O word all the time. I want to make a little. They can join us. And I want to make little buttons that say the O word is all that matters. <laughs> you know how Father Z has that save the liturgy, save the world coffee mugs. We should have coffee mugs that say you know ontology is, is everything. But it's true that, that this is you know what the, the liturgical reform movement wasn't. How can we make the people in the pews feel better about coming to mass? It was how can they draw from the riches of divine life and become transformed, and be one with God. Like that was the goal, and so these great figures of the 20th century figured it out better. Um, or worse, or whatever, but they came with these great contributions of ideas. Now, you know, what moves in a liturgical movement, at least in the uh, early centuries, is not the, the, the adapting of the liturgy necessarily to the people, but it's a movement of the people into the depths and beauty and mystery of the liturgy, as you're saying, and how they can drink from that well and become ultimately saints unto God's glory. Right, a movement is a, is a funny word, but it, it means basically that the Holy Spirit is stirring up the people in the world before the church has acted in official reform, and they have all these new ideas like, wow, something seems to be not right. We have this new discovery. Wait, something seems wrong. What are we supposed to do? What have we discovered? And we're kind of in a liturgical movement ourselves right now, you know, in a way that there were a bunch of ideas after the council, and then something didn't seem quite right, and all these like intuitions are popping up, and people are writing books and giving conferences and making new churches, and there's just this idea that the Spirit is moving through the church, and these new discoveries are happening, 
And that's what a movement is. And then the church comes along and says, hey, all these great ideas, we're going to sift through them and filter them and officially decide this is time to make pronouncements or reform. So Vatican II essentially was the official reform made based on all the ideas of the movement that all kinds of people were. So it was a long time coming. I mean, Gordini was in the early 1900s, right? So right. when was Lambert um, around? Bojones, about the same time. Okay. So, maybe, maybe even a little bit earlier. Yeah. Some of the earliest figures, not to name names, were uh, Dom Prosper Garager in the late 19th century in France and Pius X and, and uh, Lambert Baudouin and Pius X were really uh, uh, probably the most contemporaneous. Right. By the early 20th century, though, a lot of these ideas had really come to flower and fruit. And uh, Baudouin is, is really important because of the very first couple of pages of his book. I mean, the whole book's great, but I don't know if there's one book to recommend that people say, I want to understand the liturgy. What, do, what is this big black hole in people's understanding of the liturgy right now? I would say, go to the first three pages of this English translation of Liturgy, the Life of the Church. And now Dennis is going to read those three pages right now, and I'm <laughs> going right. to take a nap. In French. In anyone, French. Anyone? <laughs> Bueller. But, you know, the truth is some of these sentences take a little teasing out. Um, but it is, you know, important. The first sentence that he says in chapter one, he says, it's called the fundamental principle. And this is it. I mean, if you take this to mass, these next couple of principles to mass, it could, you know, it could change your life, change the world. But here's the first one. The superabundant source of all supernatural life is the sacerdotal power of the high priest of the new covenant. Okay, what does that mean? So, yeah, I'm going to need sacerdotal, please. Sacerdotal means priestly. Right. Okay, so Sacheridos. I am, am going to start yeah. using that word all the time. Sacheridos is a priest, and it comes from this word sacer, you know, which is related to sacrifice. So it's the person who offers uh, sacrifice. So when you put your tea on a saucer, you're sacrificing the tea from hitting the table? No, but if that saucer reminds you of this principle, Jesse, then all the better. <laughs> all right. It's, it's all like about the, the priestly response. power, the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Okay, mm -hmm. but listen to that first line again. The superabundant source of all supernatural life. So supernatural life, this is the very divine energies of God that keep the Trinity being the Trinity. It's their divine energy that makes them who they are at their ontological level. And God wants us to have it. He created us to be in right relationship with him and to become like him so much to the degree that a lot of early Christian people would say you become God, this notion of divinization or theosis. Not that you become a competitor with God, but you become so filled with divine energy that you are so like God that you are essentially God. You're in the family and the body of Christ making you filled with those same powers. Is it St. Irenaeus? That has the line that God became man so that man might become God. God right. This or, is our theosis or divinization. Right. The glory of God is man fully alive. Fully alive means filled with the divine energies of supernatural life. It's in uh, Cardinal Ratzinger's, or I guess Pope Benedict's at this time. Uh, or Jesus I would of, say Emeritus Pope Benedict at this time. <laughs> you're so technical, To correct, Jesse. you're correct. <laughs> he says in the, this, it's Jesus of Nazareth, part two, uh, Holy Week. He talks about... Um, uh, hoizantes, the living, and I don't know enough Greek to that I should be speaking about this, but bios is like our, our kind of natural word, but uh, zoe is this uh, is this type of divine uh, life, I think, of the Trinity that the hoizantes uh, has through the life of faith to become, the, to, to participate in eternal life even now. I mean, it's super abundant life, as here Baudouin is talking about. Right, and super abundant is a, is a great word. You know, abundantly God gives whatever he gives to the world, but the superabundant is to even make you even more than what he gives for our natural existence, but to lead us into his own energies of existence and to share his own realities. 
because God's a father. God's a father who loves his children, and he doesn't want to just say, you know, go be a five-year-old forever. I mean, what father would say, oh, well, I'll let my kid mature intellectually and emotionally up to the age of five, and then that's enough. No, yeah. they say, I want you to have everything I know, everything I have. Yeah, not simply existence, but actual true living. There's this, uh, I wish I remember this. Ten, John 10, 10, life, not just life, but life to the full. Exactly. Uh, there's a good line from Blessed Pier Giorgio Frassati about, good man. Uh, maybe you know this line. I wish I knew it. <laughs> brought it up. But to, to live without faith and without a patrimony to defend, I mean, he said, this isn't living, this is merely existing. But to live the true life of the Christian, the source of which is this superabundance in the liturgy from the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, this is to become fully alive. And this is what we would say about saints. They were entirely alive versus just existing through the day. And man, tell all your friends, and tell your mom, your dad, your kids, this is why we go to Mass. This is not because we have to or else mortal sin, whatever. We want to avoid mortal go sin, of course. We don't want to go to hell. But what we want even more than that is to live in the internal family life of the Trinity. And we get a foretaste of that even on earth. And so this is really, really important stuff. Yeah. And again, it, it's, it's life in the Trinity today, not just if you go to mass now, someday when you die after that, then you can become fully alive. This is the point that Pope Benedict is making is this eternal life is available even now that it cannot be taken from you. So I think that's a very good point because I think just because uh, you know going to Mass every Sunday or every day, it, it can be repetitive and, it, and you can just get in the mindset of saying, well, this is like practicing or this is just a little... I mean, we, we call it a foretaste of heaven. And so um, we're not thinking of it as, uh, as it's a foretaste of a full heaven we're thinking of it as like an appetizer like this is just kind of a a little bit a little taste but what you're saying is it's not it's it's full um well, it's sacramentally it, it's, presented yeah it, it, it is uh it, it's the real thing now what, right. did, what do they talk about eschatology there's realized and futuristic is this right i think i remember this from class once uh is that was uh, it was it your class <laughs> that you remember this <laughs> i think from? it was a student in it oh, okay <laughs> oh, it's hard to tell <laughs> is that uh, the eschaton, the heaven, the future, isn't something simply in the future. It is right now. It is realized, made real right now in our lives today. Is that this pro is proleptic eschatology, is I think. Oh, so. my Possibly. gosh. Uh, what does proleptic mean? It means like uh, happening, bulging out. I mean, it's, it's expanding to such a degree that you can, you can touch it now. Right. This, this is the stuff we talk about in classes at the Liturgical Institute. I'm, I'm getting all excited. Sacerdotalness. Sacerdotal. Oh, sacerdotal. Yeah. But see, we are, we're not even first. We're not even through the first half yeah, okay, of this go back. first uh, Yeah, go back, to the, go back to the first sentence. So God's very existence is full of this superabundant life that just flows out. And the source of that for us is the sacerdotal power of the high priest of the new covenant. That's Christ. So what is Christ doing? He's at the right hand of God in heaven, offering himself as a victim eternally, and receiving for us this superabundant grace so that we can share it as well. This is why the mystical body theology matters so much. If you're just a guy sitting over there watching Jesus do something, big deal. If you're a member of the body of Christ and what happens to him happens to you because you're connected to him, then you are drawing through Christ's headship this divine life into your very self. In fact, even, you know, I don't know what you all's experience was growing up, but grace, just the notion of grace, which, which he mentions here, you know, I was kind of led to believe it's some sort of quasi-materialistic power, energy type like of thing. Like pixie dust. Well, like, yeah, boom, yeah. Your like, grace. That it's something that you get when you go to the liturgy or the sacraments or something. I may even think that now. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> Not anymore. 
But what uh, someone like Baudouin or these early figures in the liturgical movement would call grace, they would call it Christ's life. This is what it is. It's the divine life of the Trinity. It's, it's life is what grace is, which you receive in the sacraments. It's not some, you know, I mean, you go to the, the pop or soda dispenser, or depending on where you're from, and you push it, and it zzz, you get this grace zapped into you. Grace or on such. demand. Yeah. That's right. It's the very life of Jesus Christ, uh, the second person of the Trinity, that's coming to us through the sacraments. Right. And all these analogies are never perfect, but one that I like to use is a light bulb. You know, if you're, if you're a little bulb, and you're not plugged in to any electricity, you're okay. You know, you're a dim bulb, so to speak. Hey, but, hey. <laughs> watch it. <laughs> but if you plugged into a lamp, plugged into the light source, and say there's a little dimmer switch, and you start to light up, you're still the light bulb you were before, but now you're the light bulb becoming radiant with the full potential of who you are. Your ontology. Your ontological reality is becoming full. So to be a, a dim bulb is not your ontology. To be a bulb lit up with with electricity that's the fullest expression of that ontological reality i'm glad you didn't go with a string of christmas lights because then the amount of grace i get is uh codependent upon if somebody's not even in the circuit so i mean well, actually that might be a good in- a mystical body <laughs> analogy too because oh, okay. if one bulb is dim or goes out then that has an effect on the others doesn't it i accidentally said something right. brilliant the accidental theologian yeah all right so uh all right so we've got that basic logic so we're up in the heavenly realm right above the great dotted line between heaven and earth christ is pleading for us at the right hand of the father and drawing this sacrifice uh, this divine life into himself now the question is how do we see that how do we access that how do we know this exists well Lambert Baudouin says, this does not exercise here below except through the ministry of a visible priestly hierarchy. So how does Jesus's priestly action exercise itself on earth? We have human priests who act sacramentally as Christ, pleading at the right hand of the Father. This is how we see them. This is how we experience them. This is how we hear them. And this is how we receive this divine life. So, you know, there are a lot of people out there say, oh, the priesthood is just this medieval thing or, you know, some kind of thing. The title or or whatever it is, right? But what we're talking about is not only mirroring, but making actual in our world, this activity of the priesthood of Christ happening at the right hand of God. How do you see that? How do you see an angel? You make a statue of an angel. How do you see uh, the gem-like radiance of the heavenly Jerusalem? You make a gem-like stained glass window. How do you see and experience the priestly action of Jesus Christ in material terms through the hierarchy of the church? So, that's the goal, and that's the point of having this visible priestly hierarchy. So that's the first thing. That's sentence two. The first thing is this priestly activity is happening in heaven between Christ and the Father. We want to encounter that on earth in material terms. We sacramentalize that by a priest at the altar, pleading at the right hand of the Father, taking the prayers and petitions of the people in the pews to God, just as Christ takes the prayers and petitions of the people. To All right. God. Sentence number two. That was two. So, oh, oh God, sorry. It's happening in heaven. You write this one. down. Yeah, maybe I should. How does it happen on earth? Through a visible priestly hierarchy. So um, this is the way that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is lived out in union with the people in the pews. So they have a baptismal priesthood. The ordained priest is the head of the body. And then the people in the pews who are not ordained priests but baptized priests are the members. And so this is this basic logic. People, head, and members joined to their priest on earth are in earthly parallel with what's happening in heaven. I hope this doesn't rail, derail us too much, but you mentioned a, a little bit ago that this might seem some medieval uh, weird accretion that, you know, this priesthood and whatnot. Um, but it's really not. If we, if we can uh, 
rely on our ontology again, is that you know in in all of the in all of creation we have this realm of spiritual beings without bodies, which are called angels, and then at the lower ends of creation we have things that are bodies but really without a, a rational souls, kind of the material world. Like a rock. But there's yeah, like a rock. Okay, but there's one creature that kind of has a foot in both of these realms, whose ontology exi- is similar to the angels and is similar to the created. Are you world. talking about Jesus? No, that's the nicest I'm thing I'm talking about you, Jim. Oh. Ever said about me, Chris? <laughs> I'm talking about you. This is uh, 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 human beings. Okay, they they participate in both of these realms, the visible realm and the invisible realm. And so men and women are, in a certain sense, by their nature and essence and ontology, are naturally priests because they're mediators. A priest is a mediator between two different worlds, and it's our very ontology and nature and essence to participate in both of these worlds. And so one of the, wow. one of the ways that uh, is described, man, we, we say homo sapiens, the wise animal. Another way that's described as man is homo adorans. He's the worshiping being. That's according to his, simply his natural existence. So what happens in the superabundant life of grace and in the liturgy is that natural priesthood, which we have, becomes perfected after the image of Jesus Christ. So all this heavenly stuff is happening. It's then happening on earth uh, in sacramental uh, form. And, you know, here's something that it might strike people a little funny, especially kind of the secular people in the world, but maybe even the, the Catholics uh, out there. Uh, Lambert Baudouin says, Christ has transmitted all of his power of teaching and spiritual governance to his visible hierarchy. All of it. So Christ is walking around on the earth. He can heal people. He can turn over tables. He can govern. He can do everything that uh, Christ could do. Well, then at the ascension, he goes back to the Father and sends the Holy Spirit later at Pentecost to start the church. And guess what? Who's going to do it? He hands the ball to the priests. Well, absolutely, and a lot of power to use the ball, too. So mm-hmm. this is not just, here's this thing, use your human um, efforts. But this is the, uh, the divine energy and this authority is given to the uh, hierarchy of the church. So hierarchy of the church sounds to people you know, like, oh, oppressive people who are in power, and it's all a power structure, and you have stuff I don't, and you'll never give it to me unless I you know, kiss your feet. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about an ordered arrangement of how God wanted to govern the world and sanctify the world through the church. So what Baudouin says is he gave to this hierarchy the energies of his sanctifying power. I mean, this is what priests do. They confect the Eucharist. They, as Christ, forgive sins. They, as Christ, govern. And so he says, and he puts it in italic just in case we'd miss it. Through it, he realizes the sanctification of the new humanity. So God wants humanity sanctified because Christ is pleading at the right hand of the Father, bringing humanity in his very own incarnate body into heaven. How do we know that? We're seeing it on earth as this priestly hierarchy. And what's the goal? To realize the sanctification of humanity. That's it. I mean, that's the point. And so the liturgy is then the place where this happens, where people get to encounter this, see this, say this, sing the words, and receive the, the fruit or the, the, the body of Christ as um, the meal, the communion feast after the sacrifice. This is the essential thing. This is it. And so this is ontology, to go back to my favorite, a word. This is why we do what we do, and this is the nature of it. Excellent. I mean, I think this conversation that we've had today, along with uh, last week when we were talking about Gordini, kind of falls into the category for me, at least, you know, answering questions that, A, I didn't even know I should be asking 
and B, I wouldn't know the answers naturally, but when I hear them explained and answered by these two men, it just makes sense. It, it makes natural sense when it's explained in that way. And so, at, at least for me, and I hope the listeners too, just very, very helpful in, in terms of when I'm going to go to Mass this Sunday, being able to kind of plug into that information. Yeah, what uh, Dennis and Baudouin are talking about here, this is called the fundamental principle. Think of the last hundred uh, conversations you may have had on the liturgy, if in fact you've had a hundred conversations on the liturgy. How often has this principle come up? A lot. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, My experience would be... Not often. Not often. Okay, it's (laughs) about, you know, do you hear that awful opening hymn, or I really like the offertory hymn, or Father's homily was good, or whatever it might be. Oh, I'm sorry, you're talking about in real life. I thought you were talking about in this podcast. (laughs) Oh, no, I no. no, this is real life. No. Well, rather, we should say this. The liturgy is, this is real life. This is a foretaste of your Sunday Mass. You know, the, word, the word that uses here is through this uh, uh, priesthood, he realizes, and this uh, suffix I-Z-E always means to make. Make real. To make real. This is where real life happens is in the liturgy. And so not to see this fundamental principle or to begin to understand uh, uh, the priestly power of Jesus Christ passed on, not only to all the baptized, but in a particular way in its governance and sanctification to the, to the ordained priesthood is to miss the fundamental principle. And if you don't understand that principle or its ontology, then all of these um, more accidental or peripheral critiques or decisions we might make about what song to play or you know, whatever it might be, uh, how, or something insignificant like how to, what should the church look like or something such. It should like, look like a building radiant with divine life. Yeah, if you, if you don't know the fundamental principle, you, you can't help to understand the, the, uh, anything about the liturgy. It's like building a roof before you build the foundation. Very true. Or the cornerstone. Oh, lots That's of really good. great words there. Yeah, somebody else said that once. Uh, I hope it was me. I right. think you can quote me on that. And, uh, and hopefully what this makes you realize is active participation is not I feel busy at church. It's I am getting in the middle of this process of my own glorification, being glorified by God. It, you know, Baudouin sums it up nicely by saying the participation can be reduced to a minimum without sin, but anyone who wants divine life will do just the opposite. They'll do it to the fullest, the maximum understanding, maximum consciousness and willingness to be transformed and enter into this process of sharing the divine life of God. I think every church you drive by, you should imagine with the eyes of your soul, like glowing with divine life, just like, whom, whom, you know, like divine radioactive, divine life. radiating out of this. And you get to go in there and have that happen to you. That's true active participation. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think that about does it for today. I think it's time to answer a liturgy question. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? So we have a question this week from uh, Deacon Bill Reed. And... uh, Deacon says, uh, I noticed as soon as we started using the third edition of the Roman Missal that God is now referred to as plural. For instance, in the collect for the 26th Sunday in ordinary time, it begins, O God, who manifest your almighty power. Using the plural manifest instead of the singular manifests. I have always thought of God as a singular um, as singular, and the Trinity as plural. Can you explain the thinking behind this? So uh, I'm not a grammarian, um, nor am I a Latin expert, but uh, is this something that you guys can unpack for uh, Deacon Bill? We'll try. As far as I understand it, 
it's not really a singular plural question. It's a second person or third person question. So if you were talking about God, you would say, oh, God, who manifests something, right? Because you're treating God as in the third person. So he manifests. But the English translation was a little funny in that, as Chris checked the Latin here, it appears to say, oh, God, you who manifest. And so in the, in the translation from Latin to English, they, one of their rules was not to say you who because you who sounds funny. You who, you know, or <laughs> oh, I didn't know that that was a rule. That's so funny. they wanted to keep the right second person. So it would be God bracket you who manifest, but the you isn't there. But they're still keeping the conjugation of the verb as if they're talking to God in the second person. So God who manifest is not really a singular plural question as much as it is is it a second person or third person uh, verb conjugation. Right. So if I were saying, Jesse, you manifest. Mm -hmm. But if I were saying to Jesse and Dennis, I would still say, Jesse and Dennis, you, you manifest. manifest. It doesn't change. Oh, but if okay, I were talking I about you, I, would, I was telling somebody they else, manifest. I would say, Jesse manifests great wisdom. Got it. And that so I could just say, Jesse, you manifest something. But if I want to emphasize that it's you, I would say, you who manifest. And if you wouldn't want to say, you who manifest, I just say, Jesse, who manifests. It's a funny English uh, adaptation of the Latin to indicate that this is directed to God in the second person directly and uh, comes across as sounding like third person because that little pronoun is missing. But that's the problem with English sounding like you who all the time. All right. Well, we're going to take this to our liturgy fact checker, see if you got it right. Did they, did they get it right, guys? Yep, they got it right. All right, so if you want to ask us a liturgy question, you can email us at liturgyguys.com. At liturgy or Thank if you. you have any liturgy corrections, send those along. Oh, do you. not send those. <laughs> but if you do want to send those, I will just forward them right to you, Chris. All right, thank you and God bless. Bye. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.